no, what I was saying is, you want to hear my Puff Hatter impression? Sure. I'm Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. And I'm Phil Wolf of the Nefris Initiative. This is the Herpeticulture Podcast, which is part of the Herpeticulture Network. Enjoy the show. Well, welcome everybody. This is episode 108 of the Herpeticulture Podcast. I'm Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. I am Phil Wolf of the Nefris Initiative. And who are we who are we joined by today, Phil? Tonight we're joined by one of my fondest, most best friends in the world. His name is Marcus Andrade. How are you guys doing tonight? That's literally what he said the other night on Snakes and Stogies, where he was talking about how you guys were like BFFs and We are. You know, we are. The 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 history. So much history. The sun gazers and all that. Oh, I did. Oh. I was listening to to Lizard Brain and Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's back. Yeah, man. And uh, I've, after that show, I sent Bill uh, a bunch of pictures of us with the sun gazers and the room and all that stuff. It was pretty awesome. That was a good room. So, uh, Justin, you want to fill everyone in on our sponsors? Yeah, our sponsors for the show for 2021, once again. Steve Snakeuary and his Venom Hot Sauce. It's awesome cottonmouth sauce. That's what you need to get. And then if you need an awesome cage or an awesome rack or both and multiples of both, then you go and you message Sean at MP Cages and Exotics and you order whatever you need. Whatever your heart desires. He's the guy. I actually need to talk to Sean. I need to... I got to get something for that female Jansen I man. Yeah. It's got to happen. Maybe something big enough to keep them together, even. That would actually be really cool. It'd that would be very be cool. Sweet. You'd have to have, uh, you'd have to give them like their own individual hide boxes and then hope to God that they don't share the same one. <laughs> yeah, that would make, uh, that would make cleaning days pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. But I don't know. We'll see. That male's doing fine in that rack for now. He's not escaping it. So Good. Good. Uh, How is it different than the other rack? <clears throat> or it's just the fact that he's in a rack. And it's not just in he's the, in a rack and not yeah. in a, like a portal setup. Right, right. Which, do you ever figure out how he was getting out of the portal? No. See, that's crazy, man. Because, no. like, I saw that enclosure. And, like, I don't know how... it. He couldn't had fit to, in between was, the panes of glass. He like, couldn't. It must have been no. from the front. It could have been like me not closing the glass all the way and not knowing it because that glass is so clean that sometimes I even do a double take to make sure I actually closed it because it looks like it's not there. No, I got you. No. I got you. So, how do you want to kick this off, man? Because we got so much to talk about with Marcus. It's, yeah, it's actually... you, you texted me a... Some stuff you to get into because I mean I I've, I've only talked to Marcus I think once or twice on Facebook Messenger maybe yeah and uh, you know other than the MJ Ecological and apparently you do a bunch of other stuff too so I mean let's uh, like how yeah, man. I I always hate starting episodes off with how you got into reptiles but if there's a <laughs> a, a Cliff Notes version All what right. would it be 
we can do that. So uh, originally from Brazil, that's where my parents are from, even though I was born in Pennsylvania. And when I was seven, my dad bought me a tortoise from a traffic light stop <laughs> in Paulo. It was a red-footed tortoise, tiny little thing. I think he paid like five reais at the time, which is maybe like 75 cents. Mm-hmm. And had it for about a year until we left Brazil, moved to Singapore. That tortoise went with my grandma, became souk because somebody stole it oh. later down the road. But uh, moved to Singapore, and we always had houses in Singapore with large yards. Constantly had different venomous snakes slithering in and out of the yard. Um, I caught a prey mantis one day, and that was like my first pet that I caught and kept. A couple days later, I actually traded it with the kid in school for a Draco Volans and a changeable lizard. So those were pretty much my two first reptiles coming into the game. Um, had them for, for quite a while until I left Singapore, which I was around 15 when I left Singapore, went to Argentina, didn't keep anything until about high school, bought a ball python with some girl from high school, and then I kept it under my bunk bed in military school. That was in the U.S.? What's that? That was in the U.S.? Yeah, so after Argentina, I moved to St. Petersburg in Florida in the military school and bought it at, I think it was like Petco or PetSmart or something. I kept it in a footlocker under the bunk bed, had a light in there. It was a mess. You were like private pile with the donuts, man. Yeah, literally. It was was a mess. I had no husbandry, intelligence. I had no idea what I was doing. I just know I had to feed it mice. So it was just a constant battle. I uh, got caught eventually with it. I got 10 demerits, I think. And I had to spend the whole weekend doing like cleaning gum off tables just for having a petty uh. school. Uh, after that, I didn't have anything until maybe 18, 19 years old when I was living in Miami. But I jumped around so many different places. So I lived in South Africa for a while and fell in love with everything there across the board, mammals, reptiles, amphibians, everything that was in Africa was just amazing to me. And when I got back to Miami, started doing college over here, I found out about strictly reptiles through a friend and I would go there every weekend and just basically unload whatever cash my parents were sending me from South Africa. (laughs) I was living in a 23rd story apartment in Aventura, ocean view, all kinds of ridiculous stuff. But I had the most random reptile collection there was no method to the madness at all. It was just whatever kind of looked cool and whatever was kind of cheap for me to buy was coming home with me. It's and true had, Miami style. So I, I mean, when you've lived in that many places, it's that's probably the biggest issue because you've seen so many different cool things that you're, you know, you get a taste for everything. Definitely. Yeah. So it was, it was definitely something I always enjoyed was the reptiles and it was always there, but it never really got serious where I educated myself. I was learning things from other people. Like I learned a lot from Phil, especially with venomous until I figured out kind of what I wanted to keep, what I wanted to do with reptiles and ended up going to college again at Penn State. Cause I have three different degrees. I went to culinary school. I went to Barry university down in Miami for a little bit. I went to school in Switzerland for hotel management. And then finally, after crazy knee, knee injury that I had in Switzerland, I went to Penn State, started doing wildlife fisheries conservation, 
and agricultural sciences. So I was majoring in both of those. And that kind of started taking me to the direction that I really wanted to go. My father has always been into birds. So having a collection Mm -hmm. of exotic animals was very big. And also he had a cattle farm in Brazil. I think, I believe it was 46,000 hectares. Wow. Oh, it was huge. But there wasn't really much, many reptiles there. We, sometimes we'd see like an anaconda here or there. They would pull out the anaconda. People would see it, kind of go back into wherever it was. But really going to Penn State and starting to do agricultural science and wildlife fisheries conservation kind of guided me into the desire of wanting to do something with animals. If it was being anti-poaching agency or FWC or just breeding my own my own or even working in a zoo or museum. Yeah. So when I graduated, I had a friend who worked at the museum down in Miami and he was like, come on through. I'll show you the people. I'll get you a job here. Before that, I did a couple of volunteering gigs over at a place on Flamingo and Griffin. And I was taking care of cats and that's really what I wanted to do. And then when I got the job over at the museum, I just started focusing What's cats that? like like big cats, right? Not big like cats, house cats. Panthers, bobcats. Um, I did some work with the gators that they had there. Otters were there as well. But the panthers were the best. The first day I volunteered at this place, they took me into the exhibit. Both panthers are out just walking around. Guy's like, hold up. I forgot something. I'll be right back. And I'm alone inside this panther exhibit. With These two, are Florida panthers, right? Florida panthers. Two very yeah. obese panthers rubbing up on my leg and I am freaking out. <laughs> but got that job at the museum, started basically covering for a couple different sections. I did aquarium stuff, I did raptor rehabilitation, I took care of the reptile collection, which was a complete mess. Basically whatever could be donated or confiscated would end up in the cage by design, like that uh compound board stuff mm-hmm. all swollen and wet all the exhibits look terrible and so that's kind of where it started coming and then the herpetologist quit on christmas and he basically walked up to me and said merry christmas you're the next herpetologist here wow and i was like oh okay <laughs> baptism by fire somebody had... need to tell like <laughs> <laughs> does hr know do i need to notify somebody <laughs> Yeah. I had no clue what was going on. I did have to apply, and supposedly there were people who applied, but they didn't have as much experience as me. But the only experience I had was really just covering people. Right. But that took like eight months to actually get a full-time gig over there. And So so let's let's slow down just a hot minute real quick. Yeah. We're, we're going full steam ahead, and I, I love it. But I was going to say is, so South Africa, back to the United States, then to Switzerland – then back to then to Pennsylvania, then back down to Miami. Now, yeah, your your degrees are in what again? Agricultural sciences and wildlife fisheries conservation. Wow. Now, right. I also have a culinary degree, but that has nothing to do with animals other than cooking. <laughs> right, and we're we're gonna get to that later because we're definitely gonna talk about the the side project on Instagram. Um, yeah. All right, so so now you're at the museum. And you're officially the quote unquote herpetologist because the other guy, you know, passed down the baton and forcefully. Yeah. Right. And that was, uh, <laughs> that was before I met you. It so was. What, it was maybe I, I can't remember. 
how many what animals were there at the time um before you came in to help me out now i'm pretty sure everybody's familiar with how phil and i met um he was basically working for a company and you can say underground it's cool underground yeah and the museum contracted somebody from there to come in was it once or twice a week no, I think it was twice a month, right? Twice a month. To, yeah, it was twice a month. Watch me, show me how to do things, take the snake out, and I would clean whatever needed to be in the cage. And that's how I started earning my hours until I actually started going to underground and learning under Phil. And, and by hours, he means venomous in Florida. Yeah, the VRC program. Yeah. So like someone so, would pull the snake out and you'd be the one cleaning everything and then they'd... Oh, pretty much I sat and watched Phil take snakes out, put it in a large container, close the container, and then he goes, okay, now it's you. I'd go in, clean the water dish, clean the mulch, whatever substrate was there, Mm -hmm. pick up all the feces, clean the tracks, clean the glass, and then Phil would put it back in, close it. And that was it. So, and like, Marcus is being kind of modest in this story. So, if I may, I I mean, I remember the same way, but our friend that was doing it before me, his name was Alex and Alex and I go way back. Alex moved away. He went to Georgia and he's got his own thing going on now. But at the time, you know, they contracted underground to come and basically do what Marcus just said. And Alex is like, Hey, I'm moving back to Georgia to be with my family. You know, I'm going to pass the baton to you, Phil, and you're going to meet this guy named Marcus. And he's awesome. You're going to, you're going to love it. You guys are going to click. And I was like, all right, here, here's another guy, you know, he's going to, He's going to be like, I'm the herpetologist here, blah, blah, blah. And it just wasn't the case. And like Marcus and I hit it off, like not to sound weird, but it was like Insta best friends. And I, and I found myself like I had, I had my normal job at the time and I had to go there hours before work because the museum was oof 40 minutes South of where my work was. And it's rush hour in the morning. So like I had to go there hours in advance. And then I was like, man, we're, 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 you know, screwing around and, and BSing and we're not actually doing what we're supposed to be doing. And I think that's what really sparked, you know, him and I's friendship. And then how long before the museum went up moving? Uh, that was probably about two to three years. Yeah, man. That's crazy. And now you did, you did ask what animals were there. So yeah, yeah. Sorry. I went off on my own tangent. A reptile hut that they called it, which was basically like a a walkway looking like a dock, a lot of shed hanging off of like palm fronds and the cage by design rack styles, maybe about like six of them. And it was very scattered. We had a very old indigo, uh, 18 year old male at the time, Uh, three jungle carpets. There was a, a king snake a pine snake, uh, Everglades, yellow, and a regular red rat, corn snake. Then there was a rainbow boa that somebody actually found in Fort Lauderdale, a mountain (laughs) mastix that was, I think this thing was like 850 grams. It was huge. Yeah. Um, The venomous side had a pygmy, a diamondback, and a timber rattlesnake. Don't forget about the cotton. Oh, and the, 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 evil the Kentucky cotton. cotton. Yeah. Psychotic. And then there was like a, a pet exotic wall where it had leopard gecko, 
bearded dragon and a pair of sun gazers <laughs> that were kept like bearded dragons. They had the island of misfit toys. Oh, it was on repti sand, repti calci sand, and it was like a, just a generic tan sand color with fake cactus inside of it, completely off what it was supposed to be. And yeah. then there was a big red tail boa. And then there was like a huge spot that had an albino and a regular uh, Burmese python, about 13 footer and then like a 12 footer. I forgot about them. Oh yeah. My God. So it was just this. It was a hodgepodge. It was a bunch of oddities that were thrown together with no yeah. method. And once Phil and I met, I was like, you know what? It'd be really interesting if we could showcase all the venomous reps, all the venomous snakes that we have in Florida. And that was the initial goal off the bat once Phil and I started working and he started training me and I started acquiring the hours was to just fill it up. And I think we did it in like two months. We had every single one except for a coral snake. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Cause we didn't need much. We needed what, the copperhead and the, pig- the rattlers. Yeah. Well, no, I remember, I'm pretty sure you needed a copperhead and pygmy, but didn't the cane break that was there pass away? It did. It okay. was that super high South Carolina yeah. pink color. Yeah. Oh, beautiful specimen. I actually have it shed. I can actually show it to you. Nice. But if there's anything South Carolina does right, it's corn snakes and cane breaks, boy. That's it, baby. Deal. Corn I just, canes. I also remember that like Marcus had uh, wow. he's grabbing that grabbing yeah. that shed. Oh wow, that's awesome. Well not a shed. Um, I skinned it. Yeah. Fast, yeah. But yeah. It was amazing. So I just remember the first time going there and like, you know, talking to Marcus and I was like, man, in my mind, I'm like, man, these rattlesnakes are clinically obese. I mean, they literally had, you know, fat pockets on the base Folds. of the tail. <laughs> like a busted like, can of biscuits. <laughs> literally a busted can of biscuits. And I remember one of the first things that Marcus said, he's like, hey, man, I really appreciate you, you know, taking over for Alex. And by the way, I didn't make these snakes fat. <laughs> and I was like, that, "That's that. No worries, man. Duly noted." <laughs> oh, everything was extremely obese. Yeah, yeah. And you know, the diet was straight up large rats for everything. Every week. Yeah. Every every week. Every yeah. week. So well, it's funny we we forgot about that cane the uh, cottonmouth, but th- so obviously there's different there's different subspecies of cottonmouth. Well, this particular one happened to be a western. And where did you guys get it from? Kentucky Zoo, right? It came from Lexington. Yeah. Lexington. Okay. So this cottonmouth was probably almost five foot and probably softball size in diameter. Oh, yeah. And this thing was the biggest, meanest cottonmouth I've ever seen in my entire life. And I'll never forget the first time I took it out, Marcus is like, hey, man, be careful. It spits. And I was like, what? You know, like, what? And I like think I've I heard remember of, you telling me about that. Yeah. yeah he and clearly like, thought that I was an amateur and had no idea. Well, what no, no, I didn't I didn't mean it like that. Like in my mind I wasn't thinking that cuz like I've heard of vipers, you know, striking with such ferocity that venom, you know, shoots out of their fangs when they strike. And like this is going through my mind and the minute I took the thing out, my legs are covered in venom because it's just holding its mouth open, just squirting venom on my legs. Craziest thing I've ever seen. They got in like your a, beard too, didn't it? Like a five-year-old yeah. with a Capri Sun. Like a five-year-old with a Capri Sun. It was. It was crazy. <laughs> it, it did get my beard. I remember that because we had a. We used a, a, a big Rubbermaid trash can as a, a retaining container, 
And I remember I opened the lid and I looked in and it struck up and it, 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 because of its weight and its size, it couldn't clear the trash can. So like I wasn't in danger, but it shot, it struck straight up and squat, it squatted, excuse me, it squirted venom and it got on my face. And I was like, Oh my God, what is this animal? Oh, that thing was, thank God we got rid of that thing. Oh yeah. We sent it back to Lexington. Yeah. <laughs> Take it yeah. back. Take it back. No, but it would, you'd walk by and it would smash its face on the plexiglass of the cage by design. And there would be blood and venom everywhere. I'm surprised Jesus. it didn't like just fracture its face. Yeah. But it, it got worse. That thing had like a, a crazy retained shed in the eye where it just like, it wouldn't eat and it became encrusted. So we had to put it like under and work on it. And then I had to start injecting it like every week with different antibiotics and tubing this thing. It was a mess. It's a it nightmare. Was, it was nasty. It was mean. I think I lost pounds just sweating trying to get that thing out of the tube. But I, I will say this, though. You know, Marcus, once he took over as, like, head herpetologist, the, I don't want to say enrichment, increased dramatically. And I watched him feed live fish. And that was the first time I'd ever seen a cottonmouth in captivity, like, hone in on its aquatic abilities and like we got to watch this giant cottonmouth in its little pool that it had literally swimming and hunting fish underwater and like that was amazing that was worth getting venom all over myself no, i think that we were cool. we were feeding it to tilapia from from the aquaculture that we had that was like raising cilantro and cuban cilantro and all kinds of herbs in the aquarium, but we took a bunch of baby tilapias and we threw it inside this bin. Yeah. And that thing just bowed up on top of the water and just started picking away these fish. It was insane. <laughs> but Super it, cool. Yeah. You, you are right. Like, I, I had a really good relationship with the guy who was, who was the director at the time. And so when I took over as the herpetologist, he was like, whatever you need to change, do it now. Phil and I got together and we went through every single enclosure and we basically made a list of every light, every UVB, every heat source, everything that you could possibly find. And I believe it was ZooMed that they had a contract with. Yeah. So we contacted a guy that we still talk to sometimes, um, Eric. Yeah, man. Eric's the man. Oh, yeah. He set up this huge order for us. And it all came in and everything looked laboratory white. It had the ideal temperature. We had hydrometers everywhere. Completely changed this reptile hut. Yeah. And the whole like oddities of random species thrown around started getting removed. And we really focused on what we have here in Florida. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember you guys got new displays that were like professional zoo grade displays. I mean, oh, yeah. there was... There was no like cloud forest back then. So like everything was like made by actual sign companies and, you know, getting, getting the right information on there and the maps and, you know, the, the factoids that, you know, teachers and kids can stuff can read. And it was so much fun, man. And like, I just lived vicariously through Marcus. Cause like at, there was one point when, you know, Marcus finally got his license and they didn't need me there anymore, but I would still go down there and hang out because it was awesome. You know, <laughs> I remember when uh, the invasive when they, wall with the anoles. Oh, yeah, I forgot all about that, man. You got to talk about that. So there there was a lot of things that we did there. And, you know, talk, that. Talk about the invasives. 
Huh? Let's hear about the invasive wall because it was super unique. So if I can if I can map it out real quick. So we keep talking about like the reptile hut. So when you walked into this part of the museum, you know, because it is a science museum. So there's lots of like interactive stuff for kids and 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 you know, field trips and stuff like that. But you you turn this corner right. And if you hung a left, there was a ramp, like a wooden dock, like you'd see like on like a boardwalk in the in the woods. And you walk up this ramp, and then all of a sudden you enter this dark hallway that was all wooden, you know, railings. It looked very much like a boardwalk through the woods. And there was uh, palm fronds making like a thatched hut on top. And then, you know, Marcus would hang snakeskin from, from the rafters so that like the kids would have to walk through it. It was super cool. So you took that vibe. And then you meshed it with all the new stuff that we got from Zoomed and made it the you know, laboratory great. So you really had the full feel of, you know, this reptile exhibit, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. And then at the very end, you turn the corner and it was like, this is what you could find in your backyard. And uh, yeah. So what, what was on that backyard wall again? Uh, originally, before I got there, they had like scorpions and tarantulas, but we did. Big head anoles, bark anoles, um, Puerto Rican crested, Cuban night anole, and you had some giant cane toads too, right? Oh, we had the cane toads as well. Yeah, and uh, I want to do an anolis episode. There's a whole website that talks about anolis, like as a genus, and. If people only realize just how cool that genus is everywhere except the U.S., I think people would have a much better appreciation for them because there's oh, so there's... many species that are just unbelievably colorful. And you know, yeah, the ones we have here in the South are just kind of the boring green and the you know the browns. Um, but there's a there's a whole website that's just a blog about anolis, and it's so cool to pop on there every now and then and see what's new. Yeah, they're definitely cool, and that area the museum down by coral gables where it was there was every not every single but like six or seven of the invasive species and you could just go outside and grab them off with some beautiful specimens mm-hmm. especially with the bark anoles. there was the mm-hmm. really gray ones there was the yellows there was a greenish like coloration inside of like all their patternings and they would just hang out on the oak trees and just pick ants all day. And they were super neat little smart species. It's just very underrated. Yeah, yeah I'm looking those up now because I mean it's it's also a, a really big genus. Oh, it's, I'm not I think familiar it's the with biggest those. genus out of all. Those are uh, cool saurians. But I'll have yeah, to I'll have to post a link or find the person that does that blog and, and get them on because there's just like all the especially the species down in like South America and stuff. There's just it's unbelievable. Like if people only knew, man. Yeah. Oh yeah. And everybody just sees it as like little lizards that run around. Like you don't you don't ever hear somebody actually call them what they are. They're like, oh, these little lizards, they're always pooping in my windowsill. I get that complaint all the time. Or you well, know the tourists that move here and they call them you know Florida chameleons. No. Like I got, and they hang them from their earlobes. Always. I mean, right. look at that. That one's blue and black, dude. Oh, that's sick. Like, yeah, that's pretty this, awesome. It's the, the website is uh, Anal Annals. Like, Anal and then A-N-N-A-L-S. And it's, you mean uh, Anal? Sure. <laughs> and it's literally it's literally just an entire website about that genus. And, and um, have you looked like, at, like, the doolop coloration of that one? Yeah. Is that? 
Because Marcus Dulops are intense. Marcus doesn't know about the classic Anoli conversation, Justin. Oh my oh god. Anolis and Macklets for life. Macklets, that's a real thing. Macklets. It's not Macklets, it's Maclots. <laughs> Whatever. Whatever helps you sleep at night, buddy. So let's, let's get them. to the let's get to the topic that everyone wants to know about. Smog Gigantes. Oh gosh. Yeah, I'm super unfamiliar with a lot of sun gazers. I think I think of like armadillo lizards, the ones that curl up in the in like the yeah. is, is that yeah. is that You're close yeah. any relation? They're cousins. They're, cousins. They're, they're in the same family. Right. Okay. All Cordillidae. There's now, also a band called Sungazer, in case anyone was wondering, because Google just told me. Really? Do you know there's actually a CrossFit gym in Brazil that I encountered during a lot of research called Cordillas CrossFit in what? Sao Paulo? And I ordered t-shirts for Phil and I many, many years ago, and I paid a ridiculous postal fee, and I never received them. Damn Brazil! And these people are gone. But Damn. their logo was actually Ouroboros Cataphractus. It was super cool, and that was like, I was just researching it. But we'll 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 get to the start of this. Yeah, I'm looking at pictures on Google now, and I I get it. Like those things are freaking badass looking. Oh, they're amazing. They're so cool. So, me, you know, I get this job as a herpetologist with a bunch of random animals. I have Phil with me doing the venomous, and we got these random lizards that somehow got confiscated. Somebody took and set them up like bearded dragons in a museum. So Phil had seen them before. I had seen them before in South Africa, but not like where I had any interest or actually knew how prestigious it was to, to see these, to handle these, to work with these. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, there's spiky lizards from South Africa. I see them all the time. Yeah, that, that was kind of my thing was like, oh, they're really cool. I'm, I, you know, I've never seen one in person before. That's nifty. Not realizing the majesticness of them. And like, take the price, take the price tag out of it. Like, price is irrelevant. Rarity is irrelevant. It's just how amazing of a species it really is. It is. And once we started digging, we were like, wow, these, somebody who has a doctorate in herpetology from University of Kentucky, set them up like bearded dragons. Yeah. Yeah. They are straight up reptile prairie dogs. Legit. They live in burrows. They have large colonies. They're in grasslands. So everything that was happening there was just not good for them. Yeah, not conducive to them surviving well. Yeah. And they had light, but they're light, they're overheated. And so once we started digging, we started figuring out all the different species, how the genus operates, what they are. And once I get my mind on something, I just start digging massive holes that I go inside of. And I started digging so deep that I was talking to everybody who's everybody in Africa that works with Cordillas. So people who basically sit there and spotlight poachers trying to rip them out of burrows, people who write books. I spoke with Jens who actually wrote the book 
for many hours. I think our first conversation, it was probably like seven hours, just picking his head on what am I doing? What are these? What do they do? Why are they here? Kind of thing. I remember, I remember Jen's messaged me on Facebook and he, cause I had talked to him like a little bit, just a little bit. And he's like, you're friends with Marcus, right? And I said, yeah. He goes, that guy loves him almost as much as I do. Oh yeah. And the, the guy literally wrote the book on Cordillas. It's so, just sorry. an entire book on that genus. It's an entire book on that genus. No, That's on cool. the whole family. Oh, yeah. The whole family. Excuse me. Oh, okay. So it goes through. Before it used to be all Cordilla Day and everything was Cordillas, but there's actually, it's like a type of, uh, what is it, Cassilian? Mm -hmm. That is actually in that family as well. There's actually three species that have no limbs that fall Mm -hmm. under that family. So it, it definitely goes deeper into South African, I guess, lizard families. Yeah, right. And what they have similar, you know, I, I don't really know what those three have compared to the other guys, but it got broken down not too long ago. Really, pretty much once we started learning about them, everything kind of started opening up, like the changing of the name. I believe that was done in like 2007, 2008. The changing of the name from Cordillas to the Smog. They, they used to be Zonoris. Right. Zonoris gigantis. Zonoris gigantis changed to Cordillus gigantis. And then it changed into smog. Which probably a lot of the Lord of the Ring nerds are going to really understand what actually happened. Carla Jones. J.R. Tolkien is a South African from the free state where sun, gazer, sun gazers are endemic to. So the whole writing of some people say it's schmog or schmoog. I'm not really sure. I'm going to call it smog. I don't really care. <laughs> and yeah. he basically wrote the book with this dragon that was going into holes, protecting its treasures based on the lizards that he was watching on his family farm in Free State, South Africa. That's cool. They're That's awesome. Going in these burrows. So he wrote them the face of, damn, even the Lego smoggy the smog dragon from the lego lord of the ring series the face is identical to the actual species yeah i think i remember seeing that i actually have it hanging yeah. down in my lego room which i actually have a lego room which is kind of kind of cool with a <laughs> lot of dragons in there we're all nerds but here the whole like we started digging in we started acquiring whatever could be acquired in the states some things might have came in a little differently from out of the country, but that's a story for another day when you can't book me for that. <laughs> maybe, maybe in a bottle of brandy or two, a depressus might have fallen from somewhere. But, but we will say this: everything that we ever got was legitimately bred in captivity. Well, no, that's not true. Uh, anything that was of questionable origin was legitimately bred in captivity. Correct. We'll just we'll just say that, except for tropidosternum. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, which was not... you could I think you could bring over like 650 at a at a time. Yeah, was the, was the bag limit that you could send over from supposedly Tanzania. But if you actually like dug deep enough, you'd probably have a whole lot of mix, which you, you brought up about 
picking through a huge tub of 500 lizards. Some were trophies, some were Baraducci's. Nobody really knew what was going on. Yeah. And so, the, the, a lot of the, lot of the differences are so minute that to the untrained eye, they honestly just look very, very similar. They look the same. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, you have the triangular head. They got spiky tails. They're dab color. They got beady little eyes. They're skittish. They run under rocks, and they don't do anything else. Yeah. So we started just acquiring everything we could find. Didn't matter what the genus was, what the species was. If it was in that Cordillidae family, I was buying it. I did not care. What's actually funny is the uh, one of the group of animals that's in the Cordillidae family is Platysaurus. Yeah. And Marcus called me up. He's like, dude, we really got to get some of these Platysaurus. There's a bunch of really cool pretty ones. And National Geographic just put out a video of them jumping oh, off of yeah. these rocks and catching bugs midair. And he says, mark my words, they're, you know, they're going to get scarcer because everyone's going to watch this National Geographic thing or Planet Earth, whatever the hell it was. And we're not going to get our, our, our Cordillidae family lizards. So he actually, Marcus sent me a link from, I think, Kingsnake of a guy an hour north of me who was selling a bright red and blue male Platysaurus Emperor. Yeah. So I messaged the guy and I said, hey, man, I really want this Platy. I think it was like 100 bucks or like 150 bucks. I was like, listen, would you take $100 and I'll drive up to you? I'm down in Boca. He's like, yeah, come on up. Well, that guy happened to be Matt and Matt and Jamie, Justin. Oh, okay. <laughs> and that's actually how I met Matt and Jamie was because he was selling the Platysaurus on Kingsnake and Marcus and I were hunting every Cordillidae that we could find. So oh, yeah. crazy. It, it was, it Small was a good, world. but yeah, you know, we had the, the war and I, we had the war and I depressus, which by far is my favorite, you know, sun gazers, everybody just worships and loves cause they're so big. But the depressus, man, that black with the white spots. Yeah, it, lo- it looks it looks like marble countertop. No, it was it was I'm, beautiful stuff. I'm having to be like Jake and look these up as we go, just so you know. That's fine. So, so Warren eyes would still be small. Well, let's let's break it down even further. So, for those of you who really want to get like down this rabbit hole, or should I say, this smog burrow. There's basically four main lizard groups in that you're going to encounter in the pet trade that are that are I don't want to say worth it, but you know they're they're actual lizards and not some weird funky thing that's like a side project. You've got Ouroboros cataphractus, which is it's monotypic, correct? Yeah, it's so the Ouro- right. So Ouroboros cataphractus is the actual true armadillo lizard. They're exclusively found in the Cape Province area. They live in rock escarpments. And they actually uh, cohabitate with pancake tor- desert pancake tortoises. Yeah. And those are the ones that bite their tail and roll in a ball. Um, they're probably arguably one of the most expensive in the pet trade because they're live bearing and they, they're colonial. They, they, they live in colonies together. So you don't have to worry about mom and dad eating babies. You can let mom and dad rear the babies up and, and people love it. It's, it's amazing. That's, okay. I think it's one of Marcus and I's goals. But you've got Ouroboros chiropractus. Then you've got the actual Cordillus, which is what, 26 species now? 26 species small. And right, we small. had, I think, eight of those in total. Okay. I like the Mozambicus. Yeah. So the Mozambicus is smog. Right. 
So then the, the next one would be would be the smog named after the dragon, yeah. and or vice versa. And I think there's what thirteen in that or, or less. Um, smog three two about nine. There's nine, and then the other one would be the the platysaurus, which they refer to them as flat rock lizards because yeah. they are very very flat. They don't which have the spikes, bears. and they're egg bearers as well. So they're not live bearers like everybody else in the family, right? And then you got um, Fasudo Cordillis. Right. And you got Chorus. But now we rarely encounter them in the Petrate, correct? No, there's no way to get those. Yeah, I, a- I think maybe one person I know had a Fasudo Cordillis. You think it was an accidentally brought in, or do you think it was on purpose? Uh, that's. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> No, like I didn't know if it like it came in with a bunch of platysaurus that you know. Oh no no no! He, a wholesaler he brought in and it happened to be in there. Areas in South Africa, and somehow he had it. Oh, so he goes shopping. Uh, I'm pretty sure that fell inside his boot and it went into his suitcase. Oh, I gotcha. Great dude, though, man. He makes some great YouTube videos. Awesome. There, I, I've linked you on a couple of them, so you know exactly. Okay. What you're I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. All right. Topic change. <laughs> so, yeah. So you're basically going to get four uh, main Cordillidae in the U.S. pet trade. Um, but let's go back to the sun gazers, man. So, yeah, you've got these you've got these lizards in this, you know, 30 breeder, for lack of a better word. And they need to be in the grass plains of the Transvaal. And who better to set them up in the most naturalistic enclosure possible than someone like yourself who happened to freaking live there. Exactly. And, and like I had said before, the director at the time pretty much gave me green light to do whatever the heck I wanted. Right. So I was like, dude, we need to adopt out these Burmese pythons. We need to figure out how to get rid of them. And we need to start focusing on animals that are actually endangered. We need to start doing some proper research. There's a goal to open a $450 million facility, and there's nothing being done other than corals. Yeah. He's like, write me a proposal. We'll accept it. We'll give you the cash you want. I was like, all right, cool. So I wrote a whole plan about taking this room and building Africa in a room. Talked to Phil. We sat down. We wrote this out. Sent it in, and they were like, do it so i started calling every landscape company i know and then i got a hold of the horticulturist at the museum at the time who actually is the j and m and j but she's no longer with m and j and she was the horticulturist there so she was like oh we can find these african grasses anywhere let's order them from africa instead though and i was like all right let's do it so I think we ordered 12 bushels straight out of Johannesburg. And this is the spear grass. The spear grass. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we had all the plants we needed directly coming in from South Africa. It, it wasn't even that expensive. I think we spent maybe like six grand on it. The whole enclosure or just the grass? For all the grass. Oh, okay. Okay. And then the clay was an issue. So we broke it down from silt loom and we kind of mixed our own that would match what would be in the free state. 
Yeah. But Phil and I, we, we, we also met this guy one night where we were drinking a bottle of Dalmore at my old house who <laughs> was the president of the HOA at the time. And we figured out that he was a big time biology nerd, but he was also a very tech savvy guy who yes. knew about something called Wemo. And Wemo was basically like a DOS is, I guess it still is. I'm not really sure. Is a DOS based like programming application where you can turn lights on, you can turn sprinklers on, you can connect it with websites. And we started talking to him about this and he was very excited about it. And he was like, dude, I can set up misting systems that would replicate rain from wherever the hell you want. And I was like, what, what do you do? You just plug it in. He goes, you plug it in, you set it up to Wi-Fi. We connect it to the weather channel. You give me the plots and it will rain when it rains, wherever the fuck you want it to rain. Yeah. That's literally how the conversation went. <laughs> and our brains exploded. Cool. Exploded. Yeah. It was so crazy. We set it up. Every time it rained in Johannesburg and Free State, it would rain inside of this enclosure. Yeah. It was amazing. But if a lot of uh, some people might know, some people might not know, nobody's ever bred sun gazers in captivity. And if and if they have they've kept it a deep dark secret to the point where they didn't even show off that they did it. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of talks about Bert who, who did it, but another guy that goes back in time that we really researched was this old German guy who had every single species of Cordilla day that we could probably find this man named Philo. Yeah. He was a complete asshole. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, if he liked you, he would give you everything you ever wanted. Literally. And he would, he would turn you away. He, Phil and I. He, he loved Marcus and I. It was great. And I, I think it was because he knew that we weren't just some reptile dudes on Facebook. You know what I mean? He sends me text messages to this day like, Merry Christmas. Hope yeah. you're not getting too drunk. And I'm like, who's <laughs> fucking texting me from Germany? Yeah, exactly. And it's, and it's a great dude. And it's crazy because at first you think, okay, maybe the guy is maybe there's a miscommunication in translation. Maybe maybe his his right. aggressiveness or his douchiness is just like bad translation on Google, you know, Google Translator from German. No, no, no. We've spoken to him on the phone. He speaks oh, yeah. perfect Many English. Times. He's just an <laughs> asshole. <laughs> but he's literally our asshole. It's amazing. He would talk to, to us for hours. I, hours. I didn't even know how to get him off of the phone. Be like, Philo, like, it's four in the morning in yeah. Frankfurt. What are you doing? He goes, I am awake. Okay. I'm cleaning <laughs> lizard cages. He would, he would like, oh, Baraducci. That's like a redheaded stepchild. Fuck them. Yeah, literally, <laughs> literally. Like, Be I like, couldn't even, like, come, I couldn't get the relation that he was trying to make. Yeah. He was like, nature, it's fucked. Make it crazy. It's like yeah. your Fucking nature is too Drago simple. from Fuck it up. from Rocky. Yes, yes. Literally. Oh. Break you. <laughs> crazy, break you. crazy man. But yeah. he, he was amazing and he definitely helped a lot. A ton. And oh yeah. He was the one that we'd always go back to. We'd send pictures of this exhibit and enclosure that we're building, and he's like, No, it looks like shit. <laughs> yeah, literally. More madness. <laughs> more Thanks. more that was his thing. More madness, more chaos. 
They won't enjoy that. That is not for them to enjoy. That is for you to enjoy. Oh, he was great. Yeah. So how come nobody's bred them? Like, what is it that's so difficult about that, that no one's been able to crack the code? That's the perfect question. Yeah. And And, I'm going to leak it all the secrets right now. But at the end of the day, nobody's going to replicate it because you can't. It's the temperature drop. Yeah. So everybody, every common folk that doesn't know about South Africa is going to be like, oh, yeah, Africa's hot. Yeah, it's just like Tears of the Sun. Yeah, right. (laughs) The temperature change in Africa is absolutely bizarre. It's extremely dynamic. So, for example, you wake up, let's say, 6 a.m. It is 40 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm not going to go Celsius because we don't want people to convert it. Yeah, thanks. too long. So, 40 (laughs) degrees. By the time it gets noon, we're hitting 70. That's already 30 degree change. That's a big swing. Six hours. Yeah. You get to late afternoon, you might be rocking about an 80 at 3 o'clock. And then by the time you get to 10 o'clock at night, you're back to 50 degrees. Yeah. How can you replicate this inside an enclosure? Now, David Hill, who's another buddy of mine, in the 70s, he was working for the San Diego Zoo. And they gave him the ability to build a room. He sent me all his research. And that was the one thing he couldn't do. So... This has been going on for 40 years of people trying to breed these guys. It's not like somebody woke up one day and was like, hey, they're cool, they're spiky, Lord of the Rings, it's cool, let's get it. There's been zoological facilities doing this for many years. And that's where it really comes. How can you change that in a climate, indoors? In that amount of time. It's it's impossible. I mean, yeah. unless you, right. you're an AC guy that can do that, mm-hmm. but who's got the money to do that? You already spent 10 G's on a lizard. Yeah. Right? Now you got to make sure you get it legally. How old is the lizard? They live for fucking 50 years. Right. Really? Oh, yeah. Wow. So and then, is and it then, breeding period? Is it not? Is it an alpha male? They don't breed until they're like 15 to 20 years old anyway, right? I was going right? say, it's probably a hot minute before they're even ready. They yeah. don't. So you're buying babies, and now you got to raise them like a, pretty much like a cow. Yeah. And you can't breed them. You have them. You sit around. So patience, time. Uh, I think you could relate them to like an Aldabra tortoise almost. Mm-hmm. You get it as a baby, and you're going to spend your whole life trying to get that thing to breed. Yeah. Even though Aldabras, you could probably throw them outside in South Florida and get it. Yeah, that's true. But the, these lizards are just not made to be in captivity. They're not made to breed in captivity. Yeah. If somebody had a freak accident, wild-caught baby, they wild-caught grabbed a female that came in, or pregnant female since it's live birth, and they're viviparous, not oviviparous, they would just drop the baby and like, holy shit, I bred sun gazers. <laughs> I did it. And what what is the amount of time that these babies are in there because they're huge babies. Mm-hmm. If you look at actual like live pictures of the babies, these guys are like rocking a good six, seven inches. When they're born. And, 
when they're born and the mothers are what 15 16 inches yeah i mean i'd push it even a little more maybe like almost 20 18 so they must 20. Have small litters then oh yeah oh yeah you're only getting like two or three max wow yeah and that's if one of them is not a run and dies anyways mm-hmm. yeah. and there's actually a there's a bunch of guys in south africa that have you know like a good size yard that borders like a naturalistic preserve and they'll have sun gazers make burrows because remember they burrow like prairie dogs They'll have them make burrows in their yard and like they'll make observations and they'll notice like, oh, look, babies, that's cool. But they have no idea how old those lizards are when they gave birth. They have no idea how long. They don't yeah, know if those no babies way to, like, came. Right, right. So so no I mean, one in South Africa has even bred them. No. Not in captivity. Yeah. That's crazy. In, wait, in captivity? Yeah, I mean just – They like, fenced like, around a burrow. Oh, okay, but but it's not in an installation that has air conditioning, climate control. No, absolutely not. Yeah, I mean, if somebody in South Africa had it, they can leave it by their window and just not have AC. Right, mm-hmm. right, and let the natural environment take care of it. I mean, obviously, you can breed something like that. If sure, then it's right conditions. Right, it's just like Scott Iper having you know carpet pythons breeding in his backyard because that's where they're from. Yeah, I forget what the what the company or the store in South Africa. Um, it's located in four ways by where I used to live. They were the ones who first claimed captivity bred smog. Okay, but then when you came to find out, it's like they kept it in their patio. Yeah, it's almost cheap. Grass. Yeah, exactly. And they, I think they fenced down like six feet underground. So they wouldn't escape. Oh wow! I mean that—that's cheating the system. Yeah, it's in captivity. Kind of ish. Yeah, yeah, ish. Yeah, kind of ish. But that's like keeping a pig in a zoological facility. Right. You know they're going to breed, no matter what, because that's the weather. Yeah. So nobody's ever done it successfully. People can argue it's not true. Nobody's done it. Jens hasn't done it. Silo hasn't done it. Bert didn't do it. Yeah. It, it just doesn't happen. And maybe that's how some species should be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's always going to be that group of stuff that just doesn't, you know, like you were saying, just doesn't do well. And just no one's, people can take as much time as they want to. There's a very good, or very high probability, you know, they're not going to, not going to figure it out. I feel it like is. it's, it's like the great white shark of <laughs> lizards, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Why you can't keep great whites in Captivity. Same reason you can't, you shouldn't keep fucking cordulas or sun gazers. <clears throat> yeah. And, and it gets kind of like different. Well, we kept a lot of the different species and just observing their behavior. I, I like to compare things with other animal species and other categories of animals. Um, I go back to mammals a lot and try to compare them. So, like, Aldabras, they're basically like the cows. In the reptile world, all they do is graze all day. They're large. They sleep. They got a good life. They just exist. Uh, they just yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where a lot of the cordilla species that we actually kept, I would like to compare them to hyenas with tropodosternum, which is the tropical girdle tail. Uh, a lot of the behaviors that I witnessed was it was very female dominant colonies. 100%. The females were the ones that had the coloration, like with the yellows around the neck. 
Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Had, like these black spots around the neck, but the yellow coloration was only in very large females. Yeah. It looked like the males were always missing fingers or toes, fingers, whatever you want to call them. They were constantly missing them. And they were the last ones to eat. The female was the first one out of the burrows or logs, whatever it was, rock, root, work. And so I think something that's missing in the whole Cordillas research is actually trying to figure out the hierarchy of these animals. Yeah, Yeah, just the social aspect of it. And if you could figure that out and you could figure out how to operate an AC unit to drop 40 degrees in six hours, you might be able to breed sun gauges at home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And be able to have uh, up to a six-foot burrow underground. Oh, you you need a full room. Yeah, it's got to be. Yeah, and I mean, like, just going back to the sun gauge enclosure at the museum, you know, Marcus had a brilliant idea of basically – filling in so much substrate that, you know, we could have uh, uh, pseudo burrows made. And then the glass, because the substrate was so high, uh, he put in one-way mirror or what was it? one-way glass. So yeah. on the inside of the burrow, it was tinted black. The lizard couldn't see us, but there was like a little red LED light that we could turn on that we could see the lizards. Oh, yeah. So that was really, really cool. And now that also had a, a second reason for it. Inside it was reflective. Oh, okay. These animals are colonial. Right. Mm -hmm. So if it's reflective and the male sees what is supposed to be its reflection, but he assumes it's another male, maybe a dominance or the sight of more individuals inside of this colony could raise reproductive. Yeah, that makes sense. So, you know. Everybody's going to see it in Daytona every year. There's always somebody who has a sun gazer. Yeah. It's always $5,000 and up. But why? Like, why would somebody buy that? Cool. You have it. Awesome. It's going to be a pet. I don't think endangered animals, threatened animals should be kept as a pet unless you can actually do something positive with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have, I, I don't keep much. I have a few little chosen animals. I have giant South African ground geckos. Those are my connection to South Africa these days. Cordillas. I don't really have a reason to keep anymore. Too much work, too much effort. They deserve to be out of the wild by themselves. Yeah. And just to paint it, just to paint a picture, when, when Marcus and I had all these different animals, with the exception of some of the more really expensive stuff like the smog depressus and the Warren Eye, Warren Eye, and stuff like that, even those Mozambiques that Justin was talking about, the, uh, you know, we had four or five of those, but like oh, yeah. Ber- Berducci and Tropodosternum, like we had like 30 or 40 of them at a time in making this colony. And that's where you can really see that colonial dynamic you can see the hierarchy the big giant you know alpha female and like that's that's how it really needs to be done you don't have to have 30 lizards in one enclosure but we we wanted to just go to the nines with it and and really expand on the species and kind of hone in on it and i think both of us got to the point where it was like we we learned what we could learn we were very happy with it 
we had other people that were interested in the species that we could help, you know, the same way that, you know, Jens and Thilo helped us, we could help them. Mm-hmm. And that's why Marcus, you know, we, we sold a lot of stuff and we, we gave away a lot of stuff, you know, to people that, that wanted to, to do what we did. So. I think my biggest colony in one enclosure was uh six, six. Okay. So it was 12 in total. Yeah. And it was 75 gallon fully built with, burrows root working and i went to tanzania that year and i actually took a bunch of river rock for for the baraducci's and i stuck them in my boot and i think i paid like 200 dollars to get my luggage in because it was so overweight because of all the rocks <laughs> it was worth and it once i put those rocks there i was having like the pride rock from lion king where the female would just sit on top and all the other ones would like scurry under her. The the behavior was so super intelligent yeah, animals. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Those ground geckos awesome. are cool too. Those remind me it's almost like an African knobtail. It is. I, I, my buddy's actually sitting there looking at me right now. And then I just stumbled across another species I've never really seen or heard of, and that is the Certidaculus. Yeah. Those are cool looking too. That's like a freaking Russell's Viper in gecko form. Yeah, yeah. man. Africa's where it's at, man. That's awesome. Yeah. I still, like, lizard-wise, man, the the Xenogamma Tayloray are still, like, I don't know what it is about those little things that I just, I find so cool. Now, are those, would those be the shield tails or the beaver tails? The shield tails. Because there's, some people are calling beaver tails and shield tails. I'm getting confused. What's the difference? Couldn't tell you. And and they're they're in the market and like they're pretty easy to find these days. They're, I just remember pretty... the the Jacksonville Zoo had some, I believe it was. These other were riverbanks, and they just had a little group of them. And I thought it was the cool because I, I had Euromastix as a kid, so I've got a soft spot for those. And these just kind of oh, reminded me as like the micro. Yeah. So. Yeah, so you you wind up we, we we talked about the tragic end in the sun gazers and how they unfortunately passed away yeah. and then you found yourself exiting the zoological world and going on to for lack of a better word greener pastures and you opened up MJ ecological um you want to fill us in about that sure so MJ ecological actually started at the museum okay where Jessica, who was a horticulturist and myself, we were called by the director and he's like, hey, the Coast Guard needs somebody to do survey because they need to build a street lamp. One street lamp. One street lamp outside <laughs> of the perimeter, not in protected pine hammock, on the street because people keep crashing into the fence. Wow. But United States Fish and Wildlife Services said, nope. You have protected and threatened species of plants, reptiles in the area. So we got to make sure that somebody comes in, does a survey, Mm -hmm. and you guys can prove that it's not going to harm any species. So we had, I think it was like 30 different plants, a couple different reptiles, and one insect, the Miami tiger beetle. Now... The museum was all about doing this project, but the CEO was like, nope, we don't want the liability. You guys need to become 
your own contractors, make up a name, fake a company, and that's what you're going to do. And we're like, cool. Museum hours, we're getting paid salary plus this. We'll make up a name. So one guy who's, you know, I have a lot of negative things to say about this guy now. And I have a lot of positive things to say about him, but we're not going to talk about that because that's a waste of time. He was like, why not M&J Ecological? And I was like, cool, that works. Made a crappy logo on Word. (laughs) Coast Guard picked it up. We went there for seven days and we surveyed their whole facility down by the Miami Zoo. We didn't find anything. We didn't find anything that was on the list. Nothing that was on the list was there. Right. So all Um, normal, uh, quote unquote, backyard stuff was fine, but there was nothing protected that would be in danger from this construction of a street lamp. Yeah, there was fire ants everywhere, Argentine ants everywhere. So the tiger beetle wouldn't have a habitat because it would just get destroyed by these ants. Right. You know, the mega colonies and super mega colonies that the Argentine ants have, they're absolutely insane. It's a, it's a pretty good read. So if anybody wants to, like, dig into Argentine ants, I'd recommend it because it's crazy how these things spread. Yeah, everyone's worried about Burmese pythons, you know, eating their children in South Florida. But they don't realize that the Argentine ants yeah, are the ten times worse. The million dollar house in Collins Avenue is going to be screwed because of Argentine ants. Yeah, not the iguanas shitting on your boats. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. So we started doing all this. Um, it started catching some some traction. Jessica left. She went off to do her own thing. I think she's like a honey culturist or something. Whatever she does now. So I kind of stayed on my own and I started pushing them and Jay. Uh, try to do a lot of environmental surveys. The place I used to live in is a community with 29 acres of private parkland. It was supposed to be like protected animals and whatnot. And it was basically when the place got built. Now there's 650 homes in this community in North Miami. It's on Snake Creek. So there's a canal. So obviously iguanas are there. It's also rumors of sea turtle nesting, tarpons, crocodiles that come in from Alita. Snake Creek spans from 163rd in North Miami into the Intercoastal all the way up to the Everglades. So there's a ton of shit going on over there. Yeah, it's a massive waterway. It is. And the big issue was when the developers were building this neighborhood, they were actually prom. They actually promised Miami-Dade Parks and Rec that the 29 private acres of wildlife sanctuary was going to be public parks. Now you live in a gated community in North Miami, right next to Norland, and you're buying $500,000 homes. You want security, and that wasn't going to happen with private park with public parks. Yeah, right. So the guy that I spoke about before, the tech savvy guy with the Wemo, he was like, I need help. I don't know what to do. They're going to take over all the parks and they're going to build barbecue areas. They're going to build basketball courts. And I was like, well, I've done surveys for government entities. I can do a survey here. And if I find anything that's threatened, I can stop whatever fucking construction anybody wants to do. 
So I spent a couple days just doing a survey and I found four burrowing owl burrows, a whole bunch of state specific species that are protected. And I was like, dude, I'll write a report and everything's going to be stopped. And with that, it started getting more people's attention. Somebody, some people wanted like, hey, can you just survey here? Can you just survey there? These animals are destroying stuff. What can you do? And I started digging deep into infrastructural damages that iguanas are doing. So irrigation pumps mm-hmm. in a lot of these lakes and these communities, they go inside, they crap, they burn out the irrigation pumps. But they also build burrows around the lakes, which causes erosion. Mm-hmm. So these lake beds are coming closer and closer to these property lines and they cost millions of dollars to repair, but they never get repaired properly. Mm-hmm. So the whole nuisance animal removal started building up. It, it has become pretty much the workhorse of MJ ecological, even though we try to strive into protecting South Florida's environment, uh, habitat restoration, removal of a lot of the invasive plants like Brazilian peppers and it goes hand in hand. Iguanas eat Brazilian peppers. They crap it out. The germination of the seed yep. already gets expedited. More of them plant out. Yep. <clears throat> More of them plant out. And they're a grade one. So they're like an extremely loose. They kill tons of native plants. And that's where M&J really started spinning off. Then with the zoological experience and the husbandry aspect, I have a lot of other facilities started calling me up and like, hey, we're having problems because our monkeys are getting their fingers bit off by iguanas because they're feeding them. They're trying to keep them as pets. <laughs> so, it's crazy, but it's true. <laughs> so, that doesn't surprise me at all. And, and it is. Spider, <laughs> white-handed spider monkeys hmm. always have missing fingers in zoological facilities that have iguanas because they want to make them their pets, and then they get bit. And now you got okapis in a floor, in a Africa plain eating iguana crap and they're catching salmonella oh wow so i started working with a lot of zoological facilities and you know we we strive we are a nuisance animal removal company that is the bread and butter unfortunately even though we try to strive to be more of an ecological consultant environmental consultant Mm -hmm. work with large communities try to make sure that we keep south florida's environment protected we make sure that your invasive plants are out of the way and you're planting plants that are good for the environment that are native to the environment. So we really push the, the native plants. We consult with landscape companies. Why are you guys planting marigolds? That's obviously going to attract pests. And then what your landscape company is going to constantly give you a bill to replace those plants. So, we want to try to maintain landscape companies that are working with large communities, planting native stuff to keep it South Florida. Yeah. Awesome. And that's what we always try to push and strive for. And we work with zoological facilities to keep their exhibits looking like the exhibits wherever it is. If you have something from South America and you want it to look like South America, we're going to make sure that animals like raccoons are not jumping in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're going to make sure that you have African environments without iguanas eating all your plants and all your vegetation that you're feeding your herbivores. 
Yeah. So there is a scientific aspect to what we try to do with MJ Ecological. Unfortunately, a lot of people end up thinking that we're just another nuisance animal removal company. But we're yeah. not. We're it's actually much more, much more rounded out than that. It is. Yeah. And, yeah. and you look at a lot of these guys who go around catching iguanas, they're noosing them. They're duct taping their hands behind their backs and their paws. They're throwing them in a trash bag. We follow everything that the Veterinary Association of America tries to do. We euthanize the correct way. We remove them the correct way. And we've also started working with zoological facilities on if we remove them, we euthanize them. Can we use them to actually feed animals that you have in your right. facility? Yeah. So we're currently working on a nutrient research on what is the nutrients that you can get from this meat? Is there any diseases? Is there any viruses, bacteria, mm -hmm. whatever that's being produced from these animals? Or can you feed them and it's a cheaper route? It's sustainable because yeah. they're a nuisance and they're in your environment. But a lot of people just want these animals gone, especially the the rich communities, they don't mm -hmm. care what we do with them. And we try to explain it. So it is kind of like a, a big speed bump. We, we try to explain to them what we do and how we remove the invasive plants and we plant Florida species. We remove the invasive animals. We bring wildlife habitats for animals that are in South Florida, mi migratory birds, native animals. So keeping the science base is definitely our priority. I'm glad you told me about all that research because you and I have eaten a lot of backyard iguanas. We have. <laughs> it's good to know now that we're, we're not dying. And you know this whole like chicken from the tree stuff? Yeah. You don't eat iguanas. It tastes like shit. <laughs> we've, we've eaten iguana together on countless, countless occasions and it's always been delicious. It, it, Imagine you have yeah. to season it right. Well, that, that comes down to the chef, which is my segue into the next thing. But say what you're going to say, Marcus. We, we fried it. We've baked it. We've grilled it. We've done everything. We slow cooked it and made tacos. Oh, yeah. We've had iguana tacos. The kids ate it. They loved it. But, like, let's be real. It tastes, <laughs> it, it tastes like it smells after a while. <laughs> That's just because you're on iguanas all day. So... Well, I'm, I'm surprised as far as the, you know, a potential food source, you know, as much as zoos are always trying to, you know, budget and and save money where they can, especially with COVID and everything like that. I'm kind of surprised. I, I would think that a lot of them would be on board with that because you think about a lot of the big cats and stuff and the animals that take in, you know, a lot of a lot of proteins and stuff um, and not having to get them by the, tr you know, get food by the truckload from Walmart that's old and, uh feed it to him like old Joe Exotic did. You know, that's, right. a, that's a pretty no-brainer idea, yeah. if you ask me. And, and you know, that, that is something that really keeps us afloat is those zoological facilities. We, we work with the two major ones in South, in South Florida. And if you drive a little north to Orlando, we, we also work with those guys. So the rat definitely has a lot of influence on what we do. 
and we do a lot of things for them as well that maintain their exhibits looking appropriate to what they want. Yeah. And, you know, I strive to do that because of the science aspect of it. Right. And I don't want to be one of those wahoos that walk around with a fishing pole and try to noose animals and rip them out of the ground and break vertebrae and throw them in a bag. Or grab a giant eastern diamondback and say that it's trying to attack your dogs that are locked in kennels. Oh, and people hacking cottonmouths. Like, they're there for yeah. reason. Yeah. Like, so. just make sure you know what you're doing. And, yeah. You know, that, that probably is something that holds us back at the end of the day from the financial aspect. But as something that I can go to sleep better at night is knowing that what I do is definitely more scientific and natural compared to what any other iguana trapper nuisance animal remover does. Cowboy yeah. Wayne from Saving Silverman. <laughs> no, exactly. There's a bunch of them. I, yeah. there, there's people out there that run around and they're dry fits with a big fishing logo on the back holding their fishing poles. And they take pictures of these like massive iguanas that they're catching. Also the concept of animal removal and how it's done. We we've gone deep and researched how do you actually stop the breeding process and mitigate the situation rather than I'm pulling big ass iguanas and I'm going to post that shit all over Instagram to get the clients. Look, I've caught a six footer. Well, good for you, asshole. You just ruined everything by taking that massive male. That massive male is protecting that whole environment. That whole territory that that massive male is chasing other males. The minute you remove them, you bring a bunch of tiny little males with all their tiny little females and you just explode the breeding process. Right. And smaller iguanas are going to eat a lot more than bigger iguanas because they need it to grow. That's yeah. yeah. I didn't even think about that aspect of it either. You know, and that, that is definitely one of our secrets, but I don't care sharing it because I know that the companies that are my competitors, they can't pull off what we do. We, we have the study behind it. We have the science behind it. The degrees. Whatever picture. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. Degrees over GEDs. It, it is, you know, and half of these guys that run these companies, it's all just a side gig. They have full-time jobs. Yeah. So this is my full-time job. Right. I'm right. here trying to protect the South South Florida environment where these guys yeah. are just trying to make a buck so they could put a new grill on their fucking trucks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, speaking so, of speaking of grills, I had another uh, question though. Oh, what's your question? What's your question? I was gonna ask as far as like invasives. Do you find that plants are more problematic over animals, or are they about equal? Uh, Brazilian pepper is definitely the number one problem. Okay, and is that just like a vining, like kind of like kudzu, just sort of takes over whatever little area it's in? And... They just spread and choke out whatever native plants yeah. in that area. Give me one second. Let me grab a charger. Okay, I'll be right back. Phil, yeah, it's see uh, this? what this little we started selling these at works. Uh, one of Katie's friends makes them, and I, I just put this out, but I'll show you. It's a cigar skewer. It's oh, yeah, cigar skewer. Thing's awesome. I thought it was a poker that you like put in the end if it was like a tight draw. No, 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 man, those things this are classy. amazing. I know. I classy. Just got, you're, like, you're a classy I'm gonna, broad. I'm gonna put one in the next uh raffle, Snakes of Stogie's raffle. Oh, excellent, excellent. They're, they're cheap, they're not expensive, they're like six bucks. For those of you who can't see, uh, Justin has a uh, very um, fine crafted art- 
articulated shish kebab skewer that you would stab into the back third of a cigar so that you don't burn your dainty nubbins. It's the cigar equivalent to like a roach clip, I guess. Yeah, but it's not a, it's not a clip. It doesn't grab. It's you're not actually, a clip. You're actually it's stabbing a, it's, the it's tobacco. It's like a, a little pick, like a toothpick. Yeah, but it's not little. It's like, what, eight inches? No, no, no. This one's probably like six. Oh, okay. But this shit will stab the hell out of you. Oh, I like that. It's fancy. Super, I know. I just, this is the first time I've it. used it. Nice. I like it. So, Justin, I'm sorry. You got your question out, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. so what I was going to say is, you know, we talked about eating iguanas, and Marcus and I are very big fans of exotic cuisine, as well as exotic meats. So Marcus started a little side project on Instagram. Marcus, why don't you tell us about your little side cuisine project? So I was a chef for quite a while, and a lot of my experience, I've done a lot of hunting in different countries, um, making sure that we eat what we take. Just, just like M&J Ecological, we're not trophy hunters. We, we hunt to eat, and it's something that we can't lose, and we got to send it off to our kids, and who knows what's going to happen in this world with whatever's going on politically. And that's a trait and a skill that everybody needs to know. Hunting is definitely something that is strongly pushing conservation, a lot of people yeah. assume that, oh, hunters, you guys are a bunch of dirtbags. You kill animals. Well, we spend our whole lives killing animals to eat. Nobody loves animals more than hunters. Yeah. And I know it sounds like cliche, but that's the fact of it. You know, If it wasn't for, at least in North America and most of your, your big hunting regions of the world, if it wasn't for hunters, you wouldn't have conservation. Absolutely not. Yeah, it's much more morally acceptable if you weren't the one who killed the animal and you're eating it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like what so, Travis Wyman posted yesterday with the whole like quail thing. Someone was yeah. talking about hatching quail and he was like, oh, you know, hatch them out and then freeze them and, you know, save them for later because you'll probably need something, you know, right. them for something. And people got all, I mean, yeah, there is like euthanizing them the right way is, is, obviously the better option but people were like you know really pissed that he said that it's like so because somebody else euthanizes a bunch of mice and sends them to you frozen vacuum sealed like that's okay just i mean it, it's food for your animals right exactly it's like the, the final destination is the same it for a purpose which is like every person who plants something every per every farm that raises things and it gets stocked up in your publics mm-hmm you know, there's a purpose for it. So Feralingua, which is what my little side project is. I used to be a chef for a very long time. Uh, went to Le Cordon Bleu. Not like the Le Cordon Bleu you see on the corner of Miramar or any of that. But <laughs> the, the real Le Cordon Bleu. <laughs> Le Cordon Bleu. Classically trained, but I've always been wild. And I've always enjoyed taking whatever I fished and hunted and used it for food, uh, clothing, and basically using the resource that you just took for everything that you can possibly use it for. Yeah. You know, or if it has to do with the bones being something that you can hang your hat on. Mm-hmm. Right. Teaching somebody how to actually live off of one antelope or deer. And Feralingua became a profile on Instagram that I built where basically I was cooking what 
ever I hunted and fished. And showing how all these animals that are not from South Florida that we can catch in our waterways, we can go out and hunt, like hogs, peacock bass, things like that, and making delicious meals out of them, using these resources, and ultimately going back to the protection of South Florida. Yeah, you know, pe- Peacock bass was introduced in the 70s. A lot of people are going to be like, oh, yeah, peacock bass was introduced to battle the tilapia. We have a native fish that eats all that crap, and it's a largemouth bass. Yeah. So some scientists, I guess we can call them the quotations, that work for a certain organization decided that it would be a great idea to release something. Biological control is the biggest fuck-up ever. Yeah, especially in South Florida. Let's release a bunch of mongoose over in Hawaii just so they could protect... The nene geese. No, bitch. You want them to eat the fucking brown brown tree snake, whatever it is, but now they're eating all your goose eggs. Mm-hmm. Let's release cane toads so they can eat the cane grub. Well, cane grubs are diurnal. Cane toads are nocturnal. Look what you got now. A bunch of toads eating a bunch of shit. Yep. So it, it all goes together in rhythm where M&J Ecological, we try to protect South Florida environment. Ferrolingua, we cook cuisine with invasive nuisance animals that are present, also helping out, but also presenting proper dishes and proper way to cook things. Um, the account itself, it does kind of sway around, and sometimes I make a chicken parmesan and I post it in there because it looks good. Sometimes <laughs> I do use Key West shrimp that is caught native and here locally, but the full aspect of it was going out using our environment, putting money to conservation with your fishing license, your hunting safety license, going out there and actually doing things that we've done throughout history to maintain a food source and presenting it in a proper way with culinary aspects from French cuisine all the way to just homemade meals that are using these, resources to feed each other well put yeah man that swordfish looks good as hell thank you (laughs) marcus recently uh had me come over the house and he's like hey man i'm gonna get some some ribeyes why don't you come over and uh and you guys hear that pocket sound by the way yeah is that you it's not me is Is that that you marcus charger yes the charger might be yeah yeah, it's the charger. Damn. Oh, maybe Sorry not. About that. Unplug it, see what it does. There we Definitely. go. Oh, nope. maybe not. Is it my charger? I don't think so. Anyway, I'm going to unplug mine. Hang on a second. How about now? Yeah. Mm, no. Still yeah, I'm unplugged. I don't know. I'm standing next to one of my Euros. So it could be connectivity issues. Yeah, I bet you that's what it is. You there? Yeah. Yep. Oh, I'm hearing it real bad on my side. I just plugged back in. I don't know. I mean, it might be something on my end, but it shouldn't be because... It's been doing it for a while, and I was hoping yeah, the recording wasn't getting it. 
It's really bad now. I wonder if it's Marcus standing next to something too close. He's radioactive. Yeah. Like he's next to the microwave or something. No, I'm in my bedroom. Oh. Yeah, my bed might be radioactive. There it is. It's gone. Yeah. It's gone. Huh. Nope. It's back. Nope. <laughs> I mean, Damn. yeah. This, we're, we're close to our, our time anyways, so... We can All right, well, I was just gonna carry on. obviously cut this out. Um, the uh, what was I saying now? I forgot. Talking about the stakes. No, the right? ribeyes that I yeah. called you over to. Have. So right, so Marcus says, "Hey, come by the house. I got some ribeyes. We're gonna cook up." And uh, he says, "I'm not gonna tell you what kind of ribeye they are. Just come over." And I'm thinking it's gonna be some kind of buffalo or you know, you know, something something unique. And uh, I get there, and he cooks it, and it looks beautiful, and we ate it. It was the best ribeye I've ever had in my entire life. And then right before the last bite, he says, you want to know what it is? I said, of course. He says, muskox. Absolutely phenomenal. And I would have never in my life thought to ever eat muskox. It was awesome. Where do you find muskox? Yeah, I don't, where, where did you find it, Marcus? I ordered it on one of those exotic wildlife websites. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Nice. So, yeah. I need some potent ribeye for that night. Yeah. That was a hell of a meal, man. It was so. from a farm that actually breeds them, so it wasn't farm. I mean, it wasn't store-bought. Nice. They take and butchered, and I got to choose what it was. Awesome. So. Nice. Definitely good. good stuff. Then you had some gator. Oh, yeah. And it had re- recently had alligator that Marcus's father just harvested. So that was awesome. Love me some gator. gator. Yeah, I've only had gator a few times. It's pretty good. Whenever yeah, I'll, you're here, I'll cook some up for you. And then, like, I don't, Phil, were you with us when we went to that place by P and Cody's? Which place? Where we had the frog legs? No, that wasn't me, man. I wasn't there. No? Who was there? It was like Giovanni and some other guys. I don't know. But I had frog legs, and for the first time, they were pretty good. You had frogs first time with P and Cody's? Yeah. That's crazy, man. You're a southern boy. I've, I've never gone out of my way to try them, but they ordered some at this bar up the road from their house, and they were pretty damn good. Excellent. Excellent. So, well, on that note, we're at uh, about hour an hour and a half. Yeah. So. Good talk, boys. It was good talk, man. It's Where can people follow these the multiple things you do? So uh M and J Ecological or MJ Ecological on Instagram is my company. And the culinary one is feral lingua. So pretty much wild tongue. And that's feral dot lingua, just so everybody feral knows. underscore lingua. Awesome. And you're both yeah. on Instagram. M&J has a Facebook page. Fairlingua doesn't. But definitely follow them. You can send me whatever messages they want. Talk about dishes. Talk about how to remove things. How to plant different plants to keep certain animals away from your yard. And how to keep South Florida wild. Awesome. I like it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on, man. It really means a lot to us. And uh, glad to have you, man. Gotta come on snakes and stogies. 
Yeah. yeah, I might be Kick smoking this. something else, not a cigar, but that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> what what I'll do is I'll come down to your place, Marcus, and I'll set the laptop up and everything, and we'll we'll do snakes and sogies uh, side by side. You know? Oh, yeah. I'm down. Let's do it. Let's get it. Which awesome. that's Mondays at 9 p.m. Eastern time for anybody who's curious. On, on the T, it's now I changed it. It's no longer the Palmetto Coast Exotics YouTube channel. I changed it to the Herpeticulture Network channel. Yeah. Even though I couldn't change the URL, I got to fix that still. But you can find it on there, on the uh, THN Facebook page, and uh, on Twitch, which I feel like nobody watches on Twitch, and that's fine because I just put it there anyways. So. Watch one of my brother in laws playing video games. So I kind of leave it on and just leave it there. <laughs> nice. Awesome. Well, All thank right. you again, Marcus. Appreciate you coming on. Oh, no. Thank you guys for having me. Absolutely. Cheers, boys. See you Bye-bye. later. This show was brought to you by Steve Snakeuary. His Venom Hot Sauces. Get them while they're hot. You see what I did Muy there? caliente. You see what I did there? Yeah. And MP Cages and Exotics. For all your rack and cage needs, Sean is the guy, the man. He's a good dude. He makes great stuff. Makes awesome stuff. He does good custom work too. He does. I have the only test. As we can both, I have the only lockable, independently lockable venomous rack. Dare I say, in the world? Who else is going to take the time to to map that out and and make it happen? Exactly. The fine folks at MPK Genetics. This was episode 108. Uh, we will see y'all for Snakes and Stogies 61 on Monday. 61. Crazy. 61. Here, leave this in the recording, but can you guys hear the vacuuming in the background? A little bit. That is my neighbor across the tennis courts. Good God. On the, on the third floor, vacuuming their outdoor patio at 1045 <laughs> at night. <laughs> I mean, you can and barely hear it. Like, I can barely hear it. They may not even be able to hear it on the recording. but And they're using duct tape for something because you just pulled out a whole spool of it. Jesus. On that note, freaking South Florida. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. We'll see you later. Same snake time. Same snake channel. That's right. THN, baby. THN. Bye.